Generosity is first and foremost in front of us today, and we're going to be in Nehemiah once again. And uh, Nehemiah has been this fantastic story of God moving in this man's life, stirring with him a pa- within him a passion and a desire, a clear sense of mission, and he invites others to be a part of that, and God does some pretty incredible things through that. And we're going to continue that story today. Um, and if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. You can find it on the screen above my head, or if you brought your Bible along, or you want to use a Bible app, whatever's most convenient for you. But I encourage you this morning to hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year of the 32nd, er, to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me had laid heavy burdens on the people and took food and wine from them besides forty shekels of silver. Even the servants loaded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I devoted myself to the work of the wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared for one day was an ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me, and every ten days skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for, me, remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, and we thank you for the many good, pleasing, and perfect gifts that you have given unto us. We thank you for the gift of health and strength that enables us to be here today. We thank you for the body of Christ assembled in this place, for the the opportunity to sing these songs of worship and praise and celebration that stir our hearts and, and remind us of your faithfulness, but also of the fact that we can trust in you. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to, to read and to hear your word. And Lord, we pray now that over these next few moments that you would open our eyes, that we would see your truth more clearly, that you would unclog our ears, that we might hear your voice speak more plainly to us. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us lives that are ready to go and obediently live out that truth to the honor and glory of your name. So Lord, I ask humbly that over these next few moments you would either speak through me or I ask that you'd speak in spite of me. But I pray that regardless, your word would go forth and that we, your people, would be changed because of it. It's in Christ's name and to his honor and glory we ask all these things. And together, all God's people said, amen. Famine, scarcity, fear of the unknown, wondering about the what ifs or the what might be's. All of these things we experience from time to time in our lives. Each and every one of us are affected by these things and respond to them differently over the course of our lives. Recently, I was thinking about that iconic scene from I Love Lucy, and you probably know the one that I'm talking about. It's Ethel and Lucy, and they're working there at the chocolate factory. Yeah, you know that one. They're there working in this chocolate factory. Ethel's worked in a variety of departments before, and none of them went very well. And Lucy had the same experience, and so now they've been put in this same department, and the job is simple. 
there to take these chocolates off this conveyor belt, put them in a wrapper, and then put them back on the conveyor belt. And then the conveyor belt will take them a little bit further down the line to where they'll be boxed off and then eventually shipped out. There's only one caveat, because they've done so poorly at all the other jobs they've had in this chocolate factory, they can't miss a chocolate as it's coming down the conveyor belt, or their job is going to be on the line. Now, at first, as soon as the machine is turned on, and as soon as the conveyor belt is powered up, the chocolates start coming out, and they're coming out slow, at an easy pace, and they're just slowly picking them up, putting them in the wrapper, putting them back on the conveyor belt, and they're thinking, man, this is going to be an easy and rather cushy job. But then the speed picked up a little bit more. More and more chocolates started to arrive. And very quickly, they're moving more frantically, trying to pick up the chocolates, put them in the wrapper, put them back on the conveyor belt. And very quickly, before you know it, there are just wrappers flying everywhere. And then they realize that even with all the wrappers flying everywhere, there's still no way they're going to keep up because the pace keeps quickening even more. And so they start hoarding those chocolates. They start taking them off the conveyor belt, piling them up in front of themselves, and you start to see this pile form. But then it happens. They hear the supervisor coming. And they know that if they miss a chocolate, more than likely they're going to lose this job, and they don't want to lose this job. They can't afford to lose this job. And that's where the real fun and chaos and everything that makes us laugh ensues. Because you see Ethel and you see Lucy, and they're taking all these chocolates that are in front of them, the ones that are coming down the conveyor belt, and they're stuffing them in their hats, they're stuffing them down their shirts, they're shoving them in their mouths until their cheeks are swollen up like chipmunks. And it's then that the supervisor rounds the corner and Lucy has that iconic look on her face. Her cheeks bulging at, out, her hat almost falling off. It's so full of chocolates. Even today, years removed from that scene, we laugh at it. It's humorous. It's humorous because they're worried about losing their jobs and they react in the most irrational way, doing some of the most unbelievable things. It's exaggerated, or so it seems. Yet let's be honest, think back to March of 2020. As the pandemic hit, lots of people behaved exactly in that fashion it wasn't with chocolates, but I remember going into the grocery store after hearing the news, and I'm thinking, this is not going to be that big of a deal. It's just going to be a couple days, right? But I go in, and all the canned goods are off the shelves. They've been sold out. The milk, the eggs, the bread, it's gone too. All the baking goods, there's no flour to be found. Almost every single shelf was empty. The meat coolers were empty. And then I remember leaving the grocery store and going to Sam's Club thinking, well, you know what, this is a bulk buy-in bulk store. They have big boxes of stuff. They have lots of storage space. I'm going to get some toilet paper. Yeah, you're laughing now, but you weren't then. And you remember, people would hoard this stuff. I remember seeing someone selling a roll of toilet paper on Craigslist for over $30. One roll. They had stockpiled and they weren't willing to share. Famine. Insecurity. 
fear of the unknown, these things lead us to react and behave oftentimes in ways that we normally wouldn't react and behave in those situations. As we open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, a lot has happened in the life of Nehemiah. We covered some of it very briefly this morning. But a lot of stuff has happened in his life and a great deal has happened in the life of God's people, that community that's been gathered there in Jerusalem. Nehemiah has come to the city and he's come at the behest of his brother who, had re- who was one of the exiles who had returned. He saw the city in waste and in ruin. He saw the rubble all around, the gates burned down. And he came back and he told his brother about that. And Nehemiah was brokenhearted. He found his heart stirred. He believed that it was his mission, his purpose in life to go and to help rebuild those walls and reconstruct the gates. To offer a a glimpse of a new hope-filled reality for God's people. And so Nehemiah went. Nehemiah has come to the city and from the day he got there, from the day he arrived, there was some opposition. Yet he persevered and the people persevered and priests and families, goldsmiths and perfumers, people from near and far, they came to pitch in and do this work. And large sections of the wall were reconstructed. Some were reconstructed by families, some reconstructed by the groups of priests, some reconstructed by the perfumers and the goldsmiths. But they were beginning to glimpse that hope-filled reality. And then, then it became even more hopeful as the wall, pieces of the wall were joined together and now the wall was encircling Jerusalem once again and Scripture says it was to half its height. Jerusalem wasn't back to its former glory, but it was getting there. And so people were excited. They knew God was doing this new thing. They saw what God was up to. But then the famine came. And the troubles arose. People began to think, how am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to take care of them when I'm out building this wall and I'm not earning wages? How am I going to put food on the table? My family's growing. More exiles are returning home. The scarce commodities that exist are becoming even scarcer. What are we going to do if we don't have enough? And and what if the famine lasts longer than anyone's anticipating? What if we plant crops this year and they don't last till next year? What if the harvest is actually worse next year than it was this year? What are we going to do? And that's where we were last week. Not to excuse the exploitation, not to condone the hoarding and the unjust lending practices that were taking place, but people were afraid. They were terrified. They were worried if they didn't stockpile enough for themselves and their families that there wouldn't be enough to go around. And so they became anxious. And in their worry, they did things that they normally wouldn't do. Some people started to live with closed hands. Well, there's only this much food and we have it, so we're going to keep it for ourselves. And they lived out that closed fist mentality. Still others said, we have enough for ourselves. But we're not going to share it with anyone else. Because what happens if the enough that we have, what happens if that's stripped away? 
What happens if the famine lasts longer? How will we take care of ourselves? And still others live with that closed fist mentality. They had more than enough. But Scripture says they lend it out in such a way that they charge exorbitant amounts of interest. People were mortgaging their homes, their land, their vineyards, their property. Some were even selling themselves into slavery. The price for these goods was so high. There were people that had more than enough, but they said, what's mine is mine. And so they lived with close hands. But then, in contrast to that closed fist mentality, we again see Nehemiah setting this example for the community. We see his brothers and servants joining in with him, not motivated by the fears, not, con- not controlled by the unknowns, not getting anxious in the middle of this situation. They chose to live differently. No, they, they chose not to live with closed hands. They, they lived with open hands. They said, God has blessed us with these resources. He's given us these supplies. We may not have an abundance of stuff, but we have enough. And so we saw last week, they shared what they had with others. And they did so without charging interest. They had figured out that open-handed mentality. They were generous towards others just as God had been generous to them. And now we come to the end of chapter 5 this week. Nehemiah's personal example, the, the example that he's setting for the wider community comes even to, into even fuller and clarity and focus this week. Because it seems that when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he not only came with the king of Persia's blessing, but he also came with a title and an important designation. He was going to be the, the governor there. And that meant that he was the head, the lead person, the one who was in charge of that particular section of the land, that region of the kingdom. And Nehemiah, we're told in today's scripture, he would serve in that capacity for 12 years. 12 long years. And in addition to that title, there were certain benefits that came along with it. There were certain benefits that came from being governor over that region. According to verse 14, he and his brothers were given a food allowance. So imagine how much of a blessing that would be when there's a famine across the land. You and your siblings are guaranteed food. But here's something even more incredible. It says in Scripture today that often at his table were around 150 people. Can you imagine that food bill for 12 years? Let's not think about it. Can you imagine what that bill would have amounted to? Some scholars believe it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money that would have been given as an allowance to Nehemiah and his brothers in order to put food on their tables. And then verse 15 says, not only was that a benefit that he had, but that he had a monetary stipend or benefit as well that the previous governors had charged. Forty shekels of silver. Yet, although Nehemiah had the ability to take all these benefits, although he had the privilege of having all these things if he wanted, even while everyone else was living in famine, He refused them. He refused these things that were customary for the other governors, the governors that had preceded him. In fact, reflecting back on verse 10, it says he not only refused these benefits, but he generously shared 
what he had, and he lended it to others. Throughout chapter six or chapter five of Nehemiah, we've seen two, two very clear postures on display throughout the entire chapter. One is the posture of the open hand, and one is the posture of that closed fist. On the one hand, we have those officials and nobles that we were introduced to in verse 7 of chapter 5. Officials and nobles who, because of this famine, became obsessed with keeping what they had and even possibly accumulating more. They become so obsessed with these things that like Lucy and Ethel in that, in that skit from I Love Lucy, they're hoarding everything that they possibly can. They're putting it into whatever barns and storage buildings they can find. They're tucking it away in closets. They're putting it in their pockets. They're finding ways to keep it for themselves. And even in the rare instance where they do give some of it away, they're expecting so much in return. People are having to give up so much that they're mortgaging their homes. They're selling their children into slavery. They're getting rid of all that they have just to get a little bit in return. But then, on the other hand, you have Nehemiah. You have Nehemiah and his brothers and their servants. They've come to Jerusalem on this God-given task. They've come with a clear, crystalline focus. Rebuild the walls, reconstruct the gates. Create a space where God's people are once again safe and secure. Create a space where, again, the fear of God returns. They've given not only their time to that endeavor, but they've generously shared their resources They've lent grain without interest. They've refused benefits that they could have had and were rightfully theirs, but knew would be a burden to the people. They said, we're not taking them. I don't know about you, but as I read Nehemiah 5 and as I see those two different postures, I know one is so much more beautiful. I know one is so much more inspiring. One is a clear testimony to faith. It's the way of life that Nehemiah models. And that's of generosity. It's that of living generously just as God has been generous to us. And so with that in mind, in our remaining time this morning, I just want us to look at and think about some things, maybe some lessons that we can take away from Nehemiah that will help us follow his example and live that beautiful, generous faith-filled life that he models for us today. The first thing I'd suggest is this. Generosity begins with and flows out of our relationship with and understanding of God. Nehemiah, without a doubt, has an incredibly close relationship with God. I hope you've seen that throughout the course of the book so far. I mean, the very first thing that he does when his brother comes back and shares the need is he weeps about it, and then he cries out to God. He turns to God in prayer. He turns to God in prayer because he has this belief that God knows and he cares about the needs of his people. But Nehemiah also has the confidence that he can go and he can talk to God about these things. So Nehemiah is this person who has this close, intimate relationship with God. He trusts God and he very much believes that God does care about his people. And Nehemiah also believes some other things that are important. 
He believes that God provides. That's why when he has this stirring in his heart to go to Jerusalem, although he's just the cupbearer, and he doesn't have the resources to do this himself, he has no problem going to the king of Persia and saying, will you allow me to go and will you provide the resources necessary? Can you give a note that I can take to the one who manages the forest and guarantee that we will have enough timber? He believes God provides, and he's not afraid to trust that God will provide for the needs of his people. And Nehemiah believes that God sustains. That's why he's not afraid to lend grain. That's why he's not afraid to share those resources with others. He believes that God is going to sustain him. If God has called him to this place at this time for a reason such as this, God is going to sustain him in that work. And he believes that God is gracious. I mean, think about how he's dealt with some who have come and have tried to stop the work on the wall. Think of the ways that he dealt with the nobles and the officials who were exploiting their brethren. He treats them graciously. He treats them better than they deserve. And he does that because he believes he serves a gracious God. So generosity begins with and flows out of our relationship with God and our understanding of who God is. Secondly, generosity or the lack of is often linked to our understanding of security and identity. Oftentimes throughout the New Testament, we get a glimpse of this understanding that if, if God loves you and if God, if, God, if God blesses you, then God loves you. If God gives you material blessings and properties and different things like that, then he surely loves you. And we see this kind of understanding taking place oftentimes in the minds of the people that if you have material possessions, then God loves you. But if not, then God has forgotten about you. But Nehemiah has a different understanding. He turns this logic on its head and he actually goes kind of in the direction that we see becoming very clear in the New Testament, especially in John chapter 3 when Jesus says, For God so loved the entire world that he gave his one and only Son. It's whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we serve a God who loves everyone. We serve a God who loves this world so much that he's willing to give everything so that we might know and experience that love, having our lives changed and transformed, experiencing that forgiveness and hope. And Paul will pick up on this idea a little bit later in many of his letters, and he'll, he'll begin to talk about how in Christ those old distinctions that used to divide us, those old ways of, and patterns of thinking and being and doing, they no longer apply because in Christ there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, free or slave. No, in Christ, they're all equal. In other words, Nehemiah is very confident about this God that he serves. He believes that it's from God that he has received these blessings that he enjoys, but they're not to be hoarded or, or kept to himself. No, the blessings that God has given him are meant to be shared. He's to share them with others so that they too might experience God's blessing and bounty, so that they too might experience God's strength and provision. So drawing from that strength, knowing who God is, 
having received these gifts from God, Nehemiah can live again with that open hand, not only freely giving those gifts, but also standing in confidence, saying, I'm not going to stop no matter who gets in the way. And third, generosity is a decision that we have to make. It's a conscious decision. Nehemiah, as we've said, is part of this wider community. And like Nehemiah, many in this community have experienced God's blessing. They've seen God at work. They've experienced God moving. They know God is up to something great. But some have responded in that moment of scarcity when famine begins to come upon the land and they close their fists around those blessings. They refuse to share them with others because they're afraid that if they do, they might lose out. So they've made that decision not to share, to hoard and to keep to themselves what God has given them. But Nehemiah, his brothers, and their servants, they too made a conscious decision, and it was a very different one. They chose to graciously share what God had graciously given to them, to generously give just as God had generously poured into their lives. Friends, we too have that decision, right? And my prayer is that we again would be inspired by the example of Nehemiah and that we would live our lives in such a way that we would be gracious, that we would live generously, that we would share with others the goodness of our God and King, that they might know Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen and amen.